This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Kana Chan, who's a Canadian uh, entrepreneur, photographer, storyteller, um, interesting person who lives in Kamikatsu, Shikoku, Japan. Kamikatsu's sort of famous for being a very tiny town of 1,200 people who became the first town to become zero-waste oriented in Japan. Um, she writes an interesting subsec about life in rural Japan, and she runs a uh, homestay kind of workstay program where you can learn about traditional uh, life from people living in Kamikatsu. Uh, we spoke about her experience there, urban versus rural, dating, language learning, dialects, zero waste, homogeneity. Uh, lots of interesting topics, um, and I think you'll find it uplifting and interesting. Thank you. Anyway, Kana, thanks so much for meeting with me this morning. I was just talking. Uh, so me and a friend were listening to your podcast. She's from Argentina, and she used to live in Japan. Oh, nice. And, uh, we were listening to your podcast. We were looking at your blog. We were looking at your Substack. We were looking at the town, uh, looking at some other videos. You know, we spent a few hours with some of your content. Um, <laughs> but one of the things maybe I can start with is, like, where does this iNow program even start with? Yeah, so it's actually pronounced Eno. Uh, so it's it's also, yeah, it's a bit confusing because of the English I-N-O-W. Um, but Eno stands for return home in the local dialect here in Kamikatsu. So it's like Eno. Um, so Eno started as actually, um, actually as an internship program. And so there was kind of needs within Kamikatsu for labor. I mean, there still is, as in like um, during certain periods of the year when harvests are busy, there's more hands that are needed for harvesting. And so it started as an internship program where we would invite people to come work and do kind of like a work exchange. Um, they could stay in and have room and board for free and then exchange just help out with like harvesting tea or working in our cafe. Um, and then the pandemic hit and then we had lined up all these people for internships um, or well work exchanges. And then it was like a moment to reevaluate. But we realized that in reflecting on why the internship was so meaningful to us and meaningful for the people who came was because um, it was an opportunity to kind of integrate into local life. And so we thought, okay, well, this could be, it seems like people are interested in coming and it seems like there's um, maybe there's still the need to, to have like people help out, but we could make this into a program and then um, give an even more kind of like integrative um, and immersive experience into Kamikatsu and daily life in the countryside. So that's how Eno started. Um, and then, so then we actually started in the middle of the pandemic in July, 2020. Um, and I mean, of course, that that meant that very few people could come. Um, very few people were traveling, but travel within Japan was still pretty acceptable. And so it kind of weaned and waxed, but we had very few people, maybe several guests a month, but that worked out really well for us because it helped us to work out what we liked about the program, or like kind of a suitable duration for the guests um, and thinking about different offerings we could offer. Um, I think the main thing for Eno was there's no there's no program available in English. There's no resources available in English in Kamikatsu. Um, that's reflective of most of the countryside. Um, and so we saw this as an opportunity to also bring in, you know, English. And so we help um, other other restaurants or other tourism spots with English as well. And so um, we're like a, a team of like supporting businesses in English, but our main business is, um, you know, which is this homestay program. So Kana, did you, maybe we go back one second and maybe you can just, I'm familiar with Kamikatsu, but maybe you can just give us a one second or one 30 second spiel on why Kamikatsu is famous and why people yeah. should come think about it. Yeah. Um, so Kamikatsu um, is famous because of a intensive recycling program that was started over 20 years ago. Um, in 2003, Kamikatsu declared itself the first zero waste village. And so zero waste is not what we think of maybe 
typically in the West as like producing zero garbage or like a tiny jar of garbage. Um, but instead, zero waste means diverting all garbage from incineration and, and landfill. Um, and so that means composting was required. And then um, the categories of separation are now 45 categories. Um, and it seems quite intensive, but um, once you kind of get used to the system, it's not, it's not that um yeah, it's not that demanding, but uh, so that's why it's famous um, as the first quote unquote zero waste village. Um, but I think from our perspective, that was just like really one piece of Kamikatsu. And for us, like being in the countryside is very special and being connected with people who have kind of traditional wisdom, like know how to make things with their own hands and do things um, for themselves, like make things as well. Um, that was also a really important piece to us. So through Eno, we felt like we could not not focus just the image of Kamikatsu on this recycling system, but um, so much broader and introduce people to countryside. And then, Kana, mm-hmm. going back to your project about Eno, were you guys the founders of the workshop program or the traineeship program? Or was there a government yeah. relationship? Or how? maybe you can walk me how that started. Sure. So it's a private business. Um, uh, we are three co-founders, myself, another Canadian called Linda Ding, and a local who was actually born and raised in Kamikatsu. Um, her name is Azuma Tedemisa or Tedemi Azuma. Uh, she's, she runs a zero-waste cafe in Kamikatsu. The cafe is nine years old. And uh, it started because Linda was working part-time at the cafe, um, and then the internship was born after that. And then the Eno program shortly after that. And how did you connect with the Japanese um, partner? Did yeah, you meet her so, in college or how did you oh, no, no. first so, meet with her? Mm-hmm. Um, so Tirumi, um was born and raised in Kamikatsu. She left for university and then uh, worked for a bit in Tokyo and then did what's called a U-turn where uh, people from the countryside returned to their countryside um, home. And so she did a U-turn and returned to Kamikatsu. Then she opened up her cafe. Uh, and then Linda, uh, the other co-founder, um, came to Kamikatsu as a tourist, as a tourist just to visit. And then really fell in love with the nature in Kamikatsu, so decided to stay. And then she started working part-time at the cafe uh, where Tedumi works. So then that connection was created then. Um, and then I came later, um, about a year later after Linda had been working in the cafe. And I connected with Linda online because I was really... I, I saw her on, uh, I think it was like a news piece. And she introduced herself in English as a Canadian in Kamikatsu. So I was very curious. And then I reached out to her. Um, and then, so then, that's how I met her through Linda. And then, um, you have Japanese descendancy or not? Or you're Canadian-Cantonese? or? Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is Japanese and my dad is from Hong Kong. Um, but I was born and raised in Canada. And then prior to... What was your Japanese level at prior to moving to Kamikatsu? Yeah, so I spoke with my mom in Japanese, but it was pretty conversational. I did some school in elementary school like a Japanese like after school program and then I studied a bit of Japanese in high school but I had never lived in Japan um I was living abroad but had never lived in Japan so Kamikatsu is the first time living so um I would say like speaking not fluent um but fine for daily life um and writing as well as it's not it's not fluent either um but also okay for daily life Got it. And then do you speak Cantonese as well or? I do. Yeah. But conversationally. And that was also because of my dad. Great. And then would you say your Japanese side or Cantonese side is stronger or both kind of equal? I'm just curious. Now, yeah, I know. Um, actually, because my uh, mom wasn't working when I was young. So she was at home. So she would speak to me in Japanese. So that comes a little bit more intuitively because she's just home more. Um, and now living in Japan, yeah, it's, it's definitely much stronger, my Japanese than my Cantonese. Great. And then could you tell me a little bit about the dialect you said that, um, is prevalent in Kamikatsu? How is that different than main, like Honshu Japanese or the mainstream, like Tokyo Mm -hmm. dialect? Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess, um, 
there's, yeah, there's just many, many dialects and many, um, yeah, different ways of speaking. Um, in Kamikatsu, we have, well, in, in Tokushima, the prefecture I'm in, um, we have a dialect called Awaben. So Awa, it used to be the kingdom where the current Tokushima is. So Awaben. And then on top of that, um, there's like what's called Kamikatsu Ben. So Ben is dialect. And then, so then there's kind of more specific words that only people in Kamikatsu use. And then, but I would say generally most people speak a version of Awaben. Um, and Tokushima being very close to Kansai, like Osaka, Kobe, Kyoto also speak a little bit of the Kansai Ben. Um, and so actually like many of the elderly, I find very difficult to understand. Some of the real, real locals, I could probably only understand 20%. Whereas if someone was speaking um, Kyojungo or the kind of T- Tokyo uh, standard, official, yeah, yeah, yeah t- um, standard Japanese, then it would it would be no problem. And people also don't speak as um, politely, um, so people are pretty casual in how they speak to each other. Great. Well, that's. I think one of the interesting things about your project is you you moved from Canada. And where were you living in Canada? I was living in Vancouver. Got it. So you went from a major metropolis to living in rural Inaka, kind of countryside Japan. Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously that has pros and cons. And your podcast explores some of those. Maybe you can, (laughs) I mean, I don't even know where to start. Maybe you can start with um, your culture shock. How was that for you? Sure. Yeah. Actually, before um, moving to Kamikatsu, I was actually based in Bangladesh. So I was based in... um, Chittagong, the second largest city in Bangladesh. So actually, yeah, it, it, it's it's a contrast coming from Vancouver to uh, Kamikatsu, but even more from Bangladesh to Kamikatsu. Um, so I would just say the the kind of abundance of nature, I, it's a, like a positive shock. Um, and I think another culture shock was just, I had never lived in somewhere where the sense of like community was so prevalent i think in like cities you kind of fall into um like niche circles where your hobby kind of draws people together um like i was in in like a group for running or like yeah but here just like kind of daily life and work overlap um and so yeah for better or for worse you know people are very close-knit um even though we're like in the mountains and so it's not like a like many other inakas maybe like the people are living or inaka countryside um maybe people are living a bit closer together Um, but here people are quite spread out in the mountains um but still you know when it's like time for a certain harvest people just kind of congregate and come together um and a real sense of like people just like looking out for you but the people who aren't necessarily you know like related to you via work or hobbies or family what did you study in university yeah i finished my bachelor's in business administration and then i did my master's in sustainability and tourism management oh wow so maybe we can start with there um clearly the inaka of japan has demographic issues i mean mm-hmm. half of japan in entirety is yeah. facing a major demographic issue and they don't really want to allow immigration mm-hmm. what do you think of just the role of tourism i guess in trying to create some sustainable economic option for these small towns yeah it's it's been interesting because very, very recently, um, the Japanese government has allowed uh, pre-pandemic visa regulations, which means that most countries can come to Japan now visa-free. Um, and it's it's great news for us, I think, as like a small business and, and our main priority has been welcoming foreigners. Um, but I've heard a lot of, not particularly in the countryside, but my uh, friends in like Tokyo or the bigger cities, seem to be quite averse to tourism. And I think just feeling the negative repercussions of mass tourism has has been really, um, yeah, not something that they're, they're quite positive about. And I think um, in this very two and a half years of very tight uh, COVID and 
and um, foreigners allowed into Japan um, was quite strict, and so they felt quite free from from the the burdens of mass tourism. I think that if you think about sustainable tourism, I think redirecting the flow um, of tourists out of the big cities to countrysides, but then it's not so simple as just kind of putting them into the countryside. I think it requires a lot of investment in um, different infrastructures that support um, tourists who could come on their own. I think that I think that people don't really go through travel agencies. And so there's a sense of like um, autonomy that's needed. But for that, you need the resources available. Um, so I think that the kind of model we set up and as well in the countryside, I think it's difficult to just show up and then expect um, to feel like you can integrate or have these experiences. Um, so we do really see our businesses like, you know, it's a very, very small project, but if it could be replicated in other countrysides, um, then I think it could be really beneficial in offsetting maybe some of the, some of the flow to only cities. Um. I was going to ask about some of the businesses that have, I, I saw that there's the brewery, which is kind mm -hmm. of, a, and then there's the coffee shop and the hotel. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys have a business council or how does the town address itself as kind of economic development? I'm just curious how that works. Do you deal mm -hmm. with the, the city government or how is that process? Yeah, I personally am not in the city or sorry, in the, in like the business council, but Tidemi is, um, and they get together and discuss, but it's interesting because there's no tourism council. Um, but a lot of business comes from tourism. Um, but there is a business council and they discuss, yeah, they discuss business flow, business activity, profit, um, and also local ventures, like trying to create a space where new companies could enter Kamikatsu. Yeah. There was oh, Has sorry. there been any support from the federal or municipal governments or I'm just uh, curious on the structures? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're pretty out there. I mean, it's far removed from major um, like city governments or whatnot. So I'm just curious what the resources are that are given to the town. Yeah, I'm not, I'm actually not sure exactly um, what kind of national budgets they receive. There are definitely something, but I, I don't know the details of that. And then is the town trying to attract more what you said, U-turn type of entrepreneurship mm -hmm. or more new residents mm -hmm. or what's the plan there? Yeah, I think this is true of most countryside in Japan, but there's this kind of term for U-turn where you leave your hometown but then return to your hometown and then there's I-turn which is when people from the city move to the countryside and there is this government program um, that supports these I-turns and so if you decide to move from the city to the countryside um, and you they, they have job postings that are uh, given by the local businesses and if you work with that company you can have your salary subsidized from the government um, and then you have other additional benefits like a car and rent support and that comes from the government not from the business who's hiring you so there um, are these kind of programs and i know that in kamikatsu we have about um i think less than 10 of these um government supported work programs and then these are only for local, uh, as in uh, only for Japanese people. In this town, what was the main reasons for those U turn or I turn people to return? Yeah, yeah um, I think about Teremi, and for her, it was her her connection with her hometown. Um, her mother was very instrumental in setting up the zero waste system, and so she felt like her mother also passed away. Um, around the same time she came back to Kamikatsu. So for her, it was important to uh, carry on kind of the legacy of her mother. I know for others who are also um, back um, after being away, came home because of familial ties. Do you think there's a, do you know what the lohas kind of lifestyle is in Japan? 
Oh, yes, yes, yes. Do you, I mean, that's kind of a consumerist version of kind of ecological life. Do you think there's a disenchantment with younger Japanese people with the traditional economic model or not? I, th- I do think that some people move to the countryside in kind of an escape from like the economic pressures or the work pressures of the city. I don't think it's a case for everyone who moves to the countryside, but I do think that people are seeking some sort of maybe alternative um, alternative option to work, to health, to life. And so in that sense, maybe a, a little bit connected to Lojas. Although I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I do think that you accept so many differences by moving to the countryside. So you, you have to be aware of like that reality to move. Do you think people in the countryside are more open-minded or closed-minded than the metropolis? Yeah. Um, and I, I am only speaking of Kamikatsu because I know that many, many countrysides are very different. Um, I think that it's not necessarily like that, um, that people here are closed-minded. I think that sometimes people can be quite, um, just unaware. And I think that their world, especially like, you know, the elderly who are, um, only born and raised here some have never left kamikatsu and so their world is just smaller i don't think they're necessarily close-minded because we do bring a lot of our guests to local people and they there's a lot of curiosity and a lot of interest in learning about who they are and where they come from um but i i grew up in canada and i grew up in vancouver where it was just so multicultural and in that sense like there's a different different concept of like open-mindedness you're just like receptive to different cultures and ideas um and maybe that receptiveness of, of like new ideas is not um embedded into like the fabric of kamikatsu but there is curiosity and there is a, like a warmness and i think that most people who come here either as a tourist or as someone who moves here especially if someone who moves here is quite like embraced warmly are there any foreigners other than you and um, your partner living in the town? Um, so Linda, yeah, uh, just a business partner, but Linda is um, the only other foreigner. My sister recently uh, moved to Kamikatsu. Uh, she's, but she was only here for a year. And uh, I think we're the only three. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I've been to Japan many times and, I personally like the Naka more than Tokyo. I have a daughter. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, it looks great. I, I have a young daughter and we went, the last time I was in Japan before COVID, um, we were breastfeeding. My, my partner was breastfeeding and in Tokyo, you would get the most horrendous kind of disgust. Um, <sighs> and it's just a very anti-natal <sighs> uh, place. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, we were in, we went to Naoshima and Ta- Tashima, these very tiny islands. Yeah, Tashima, yeah. yeah not so the, far from here. Yeah, and the grandmas there were literally grabbing my daughter and, like, giving her baths and giving us suika and sharing watermelon and inviting us to drink right. sochu. And we had no issues as foreigners. Um, I speak some Japanese, not fluent, obviously. Right. And they were so receptive and kind to us, whereas in Tokyo, literally... I mean, obviously, I have friends from Fukuoka. So the more south you move, it becomes more relaxed yeah. and friendly. Yeah. So, um, and I'm calling you from now. I live in Hawaii. I used to live in the mainland of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And Hawaii is kind of a different country entirely than the United yeah. States. So yeah. even here, I find the rural people a little bit more open. Not They're less judgmental. So even if you went right, to Vancouver right. and San Francisco, there's a certain inflexibility of... Yeah. Being under. Yeah. So I was just curious if you've become more, you know, Vancouver, San Francisco, New York, there's the almost, there's a homogeneity to it. Yeah. Whereas your town, Kamikatsu, there's the local dialect, the local um, tea. You're, you, you, you were talking about the Anbancha. 
and there's a lot of local cultures. I'm just curious if you've become more interested in the local versus kind of the global. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and uh, sorry to hear about those experiences in the city, but I, I could imagine that being the, the, the reality. And um, I'm glad that they were countered to such more positive experiences in the countryside. And I guess that's also really, yeah, what we want to show because it's it's so hard for um, us to tell that without like experiencing it for themselves. And so that, that's definitely the experiences we want to share with our guests. Um, I, I think definitely being in somewhere like Kamikatsu with such rooted traditions, um, it does feel, yeah, like I'm going from something very macro to something very micro and very like honing in on these very specific and um, unique traditions. Um, I didn't, I don't feel at all like, you know, like very rooted to Vancouver. Um, probably because there wasn't that element of like tradition. Um, and I thought I would always need somewhere with a lot of culture. I still do feel that. Um, but I'm okay with that being a trip and for the base to be here in Kamikaze. So Kyoto is not too far. So I do enjoy, I do still enjoy the the culture and the art and, um, that's really not here Kamikatsu. We don't have, you know, kombini. We don't have movie theaters. We don't have much. But then, yeah, counter to that, it's it's nice to be able to explore these traditions with local people who have been practicing them for a long, long time and intergenerationally. Um, on one of your pata- podcasts, you talked about Nakamura-san. I think she's mm-hmm. an elder. Maybe you can just tell me more about her. Yeah, so... Um, uh, actually, Osamu Nakamura-san, so uh, he, um, he is, uh, has been living in Kamikatsu for over 30 years, and um, Nakamura-san uh, was kind of a regular Japanese person in the sense that he uh, grew up in the bubble area, had a, um, had a salary man job, and then decided that um, he wanted to kind of explore the world and leave Japan. And so he went on a 15-year journey kind of around the world um, with a lot of the latter part of his journey being based in Nepal. Um, And when he was in Nepal, spent time with tribes, spent time with um, Buddhist monks, and then learned a lot of craft, um, particularly um, wooden crafts, like where you... uh, it's called mokuhanga in Japanese, but you like carve wood and then you create block prints with the wood. Um, so learn that craft and then was connected to a Japanese community in Nepal and then decided to return back to Japan. I wasn't sure where to return back to. And within that Japanese community in Nepal, um, connected with someone who was local to Kamikatsu. So he moved here and started his life but he took a lot of inspiration from his time abroad and from um people in nepal and then his house is just set up in a in a way that um he consumes very very little energy i think his energy bill a month is one light bulb of like 400 yen um and otherwise he cooks with wood and he uh makes his most of his own food he doesn't have a car so he drives and so um this kind of lifestyle for us is very yeah it's not very accessible for a lot of people um but i don't think the point of bringing our guests to nakamara-san is for people to walk away thinking they need to only cook with wood um but to to rethink like how we consume and why we consume and get inspiration from how he lives so integrated with nature Do you think one of the questions my Argentine friend had mm-hmm. was, why do you think in Japan um, there's no culture of upcycling or recycling mm-hmm. at a massive scale? So if you go, you know, every major city in the U.S. has people using, you know, bags to their laundry, you know, their laundry, their shopping and whatnot mm-hmm. but in japan there isn't that culture and there's, there's so much plastic wrapping yeah. so much so i'm just curious why you think that is and why there's that disconnect when there's the slow low house kind of movement but then mm-hmm. the consumeristic 
I'm trying to figure out where those conflicts come from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think if you really look back a little bit further, um, Japan did do a lot of upcycling, recycling, and using um, things that were able to go back to the earth. Um, even here in Kamikaze, you hear about local people talking about, um, yeah, they had fish wrapped in leaves, you know, when they went to the place to get fish or um, everyone made their own tofu and things like this. And so, um, and their own like soy sauce. And and so I think, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where it changed, but I think that plastic became um, synonymous with like sanitation and with cleanliness. And, and I think in Japan, there's also, um, like a very pervasive idea of like perfection or like seeking things that are, are very, yeah, perfect. And so that's reflected in a lot of the produce that's, um, at the grocery stores. And then on top of that being wrapped in plastic to preserve that. Um, so I think that, Traditionally, traditionally, as in like several generations ago, that was not the case. Um, yeah, I'm not sure why at large it's not not like upcycling is not promoted. But in Kamikatsu, um, we do have a shop that's dedicated to upcycling and recycling. Um, and so people can bring in their used clothes or their used kimonos. Um, we also recycle the koinobori from children's day the kind of carp string hangers and then upcycle those clothes to make new clothes um and local uh, um, local people also do craft with those things like make pouches or bags and so that's sold uh, right next to the uh gomis gomis station or the recycling center do you think this might be um more of a challenging question. Do you know the mm-hmm. Unshinriko cult in Japan? Obviously. Yeah. And yeah. the gas attack. Yeah. Do you think yeah. there's any cult-like behavior in um, the ecological kind of zero waste movement? I'm not connecting the two, but I'm just curious if yeah. the town has any kind of, do you ever feel isolated or pressured? How, how are the peer dynamics work in the mm-hmm. town? Mm-hmm. No, no, not at all. Uh, not at all cult-like or pressure. I think, I think some people feel pressure to do recycling, um, but yeah, I mean, but I wouldn't say that like it's pressure so much that it feels like there's no way out. Um, is there you know anyone in the town who just refuses to, to participate in the zero yeah. waste program? I'm yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. I I would not say there's a hundred percent buy-in into the system. It was still introduced only twenty years ago, and so it's still relatively new compared to locals who have been, for the most part. So before the recycling system, there was an open burning, so it was just this giant hole in the ground, and people would throw their garbage into this hole in the ground, and it would just be like set ablaze weekly. And so, and if you didn't bring your garbage to this hole in the ground, people would just burn it in their own homes, like in just like these tin can things, um, yeah, or just yeah. yeah, which is just crazy. And so they were using still, commercial incinerators, right, to generate electricity. No, and so actually, they they purchased after the giant hole in the ground, um, and there are locals here who are you know, like, for example, Tenemi, who's who's you know, in her mid thirties, she remembers this like giant hole in the ground and how bad it smelled. Um, but after that hole in the ground, they purchased two incinerators and the two incinerators were used for a bit, but then, um, there was a national regulation passed where there was like a certain level of dioxins that incinerators could produce. And the new, the recently purchased incinerators didn't meet this qualification. So they had to either purchase new incinerators or start shipping their garbage. Um, But both were very costly. And so recycling was also this economic alternative. We said, well, if we don't produce as much waste and we recycle our waste, um, this could be like an alternative way forward. So what are the people who aren't participating in the program like? I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they're just stuck in in their ways of doing burning. 
Um, well, so they're still doing like open burns in their backyards or whatnot. Yeah, I think there are still some people who are doing this. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. At least, I mean, that makes it, at least the town have some dynamic, um, non-cult-like. Uh, yeah, I think I think the media portrays it like that. Everyone is a hundred percent buy-in, but I don't think you get a hundred percent buy-in to anything anywhere, um, and that's certainly the case here. And there are some people who who do recycling really well, and some who don't. And uh, there's staff at the garbage center who or recycling center who help with people who have a difficult time, but I don't, I also don't think that this is maybe the best system. I'm not sure. I think that with an um, increasingly elderly population, recycling into so many categories is very difficult. Um, And so I don't know if this like is more, yeah, of a burden than it is like kind of a positive environmental action. It's funny because here in Hawaii, there's no recycling at least, and well, there's a little bit, but it ended up being canceled because all the recycling was just being sent to China and China refused to accept it. And the incinerator became the best option because the incinerator could then generate electricity. And it's interesting because some of the economic analysis can be quite complicated. Like recently I read about the canvas bag actually being more environmentally heavy than a plastic Mm -hmm. bag potentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's just- Especially depending on its lifespan, right? Correct. I think what's more interesting to me about the zero waste program in the town is it creates, it's not nihilistic like Greta Thunberg or mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. um, kind of extinction rebellion type right, um, right. environmentalists. I felt a very positive community feeling from all the yeah. the kamikatsu, mm-hmm. at least maybe it's just Japanese people are that way. They feel positive mm-hmm. about the future even though their country has a lot of problems. I'm just, they're optimistic somehow. You know, the the, the Greta image is very like, just end your life almost. These little, the Japanese grandmas seem to be happy to just take off lids and wash things and separate them into like 45 categories and not really complain. (laughs) I think there are some of those grandmas and then there are the complaining grandmas who are like, I don't mind washing my plastic so i think yeah i think it's definitely both i think media uh, distorts maybe the the like the 100 percent buy-in image but um there are definitely people who who find it challenging or time consuming and i mean even i do but i don't think it's difficult so um i definitely think one of the interesting questions my argentine friend had when we were looking Mm -hmm. at your content is that when she had her gallery in, in uh, I think it was in Kyoto. She had her first show about trash in Japan. Oh, wow. And they spent six months collecting trash on the beaches of Japan. And wow. the Japanese government was saying, oh, all the trash is from China. It's all from Korea. It's all foreign. Right. And then what they did with the Japanese artists was identify all the trash. And it was like 95% Japanese. Wow. So yeah. it's interesting because even in Tokyo, when you go there, there's like no trash cans anywhere, but you right. go to the com- convenience store and there's like 45 pieces of plastic per sandwich. Right. So right. it's just an interesting, I was going to ask you about the concept of uh, hone tatemae. Yeah. 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 And if you see that in the town or for people who don't know what that is, the, you know, the, I don't know how to describe it, but the, the inner face and the outer face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm curious yeah. how you navigate that being a foreigner in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting because sometimes I think I'm more Japanese because I grew up speaking, but then things like these concepts, I really have a hard time. We're like, you know, uh, reading the air, like kuki yomu. Um, I have a difficult time. And yeah, I think I'm a pretty transparent person in that I don't like my inner thoughts are probably reflective of what I'm saying outside. Um, I think it's more difficult to get to know people because I'm always wondering, is this, yeah, is this what you're saying on the outside, but what do you really feel on the inside? Um, but I think in the countryside, people, you, you build these relationships over time and you nurture these relationships. So I do feel kind of these kind of lines and separations crumble a little bit but yeah this is from a foreigner's perspective like from my perspective um and so i'm yeah i'm not always sure do you have any religious practices no i'm not religious 
Um, no, I was just curious because mm-hmm. you, there's Matsuri and kind of Shinto and Buddhist Obon festivals. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. do you participate then just as a agnostic or lay person then? Yeah, as a, as a lay person, probably. Um, I, I believe in some, like, I think I'm spiritual in that I think that there's some sort of higher being and I'm, there's a possibility of maybe spirits or other things, but I, I don't subscribe to a, to a religion, but I do think that these, yeah, these matsuris and these practices are so fascinating to observe and be a part of. And so, um, I just try to do it with as much respect, but not as practicing the religion. Um, do you have any, have you developed any relationship with yokai or any folklore in oh. <laughs> Japan? Because you're, you know, Inaka, there's a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot. Of, yeah. There's a lot. So I'm curious um, if you have any favorite new, you know, goblins or demons or <laughs> kappa or anyone. I don't, I, I, I'm not like, I'm not super well read or into it, but I do hear about people talking about certain things that live in different forests or mountains or rivers. Um, yeah, no, no, no favorites. <laughs> but there is a god um, in Kamikatsu where if you lose things, you can go pray to that god and um, it'll help you find your things. So uh, Terumi lost her passport and went and go and prayed to that god and found her passport. And every time you find something, uh, you have to give that god sake or some sort of offering. So that's a that's a good god to have. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, is, isn't everything just upcycled into the secondhand store? So you just go there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <You> just... That's true. <laughs> so the God is just, you know, working there, I guess. Um, yeah. could, you, could you tell me about this tea you guys drink, this fermented tea? The yeah. Bancha? Mm-hmm. So it's called Awa Bancha. Awa, again, because of like the Awa kingdom of Tokushima. And then Bancha is, um, it's, it's written not, normally people think Bancha comes from the, like ichiban, niban, samban. It's like a ranking. Um, and that ranking is used for green tea. So when like the first harvest, you have ichiban tea, you have niban tea. Um, but bancha is a different bancha. It's the character for evening. So yukata. Um, and that was to separate it from green tea because actually bancha is harvested from the same green tea leaves. But because it's fermented, it becomes a completely different tea. Uh, so there was this kind of like play on play on kanji. Um, and Bancha is how are yeah, they fermenting it, it in yeah Koji in, in vats in in these large uh, no no it's actually an anaerobic fermentation um, so after the leaves are picked and it's it's different than you know if you go to like Uji or Kyoto you have kind of cultivated tea farms and there's just rows of tea in Kamikatsu these teas really grow quite wildly and almost everywhere. If you go for a walk and you know what you're looking for, you can find almost these bunch of teas, any bunch of leaves anywhere. Um, so green tea is harvested in in April and bancha is harvested in like late July, August. Once they're picked from the mountains, they get boiled. And once after they're boiled, which is quite unique as well, they get boiled and then they get rolled. And this rolling kind of like starts to activate the, the bacteria in the leaves. And then they after they're rolled, they get pressed into vats, um, into these wooden vats. And then it's uh, pressed down with rocks. And so double the weight of the amount of tea you picked, you put the rocks on top. And then you're really just releasing all the air. And it's just, yeah, an anaerobic fermentation. And it's fermented from anywhere between three weeks to, yeah, like 50 days. Um sometimes even longer and it's really like kind of depends on how it was done and and bancha was done from for families only so people only made what their family could drink and so that's why this tea culture fermented tea awa bancha has not spread very far um because it was done only for um for the family and then after it's it's fermented for that period of time it's dried out um kind of each leaf is picked because they've been pressed down. So each leaf is spread out and it gets dried for about three days and then the tea is ready. Wonderful. And mm-hmm. you no, know, I, I saw in your blog, you have so many um, 
the Umeshu and you're making a lot of like local kind of products, which seems mm-hmm. really beautiful and special. Um, how do, I mean, maybe for people who are interested in visiting this town, what do you recommend for them? Should they go through your program, through private travel? <laughs> you know, what do you recommend? Of course they should come through our program. <laughs> um, uh, no, it really depends. I mean, it, like what they're looking for, like um, everything in Kamikaze depends on the seasons. And so if you want to do like things like harvesting um, rice, it depends on the season, harvesting tea, only summer. And I think there's like a lot of nature that's very accessible to people without a guide. Um and visiting, but I think it's those connections with local people. And if you wanted to have those experiences, having tea or cooking with local people, um, then like we've, we've built these relationships, um, with trust and with, um, time. And so, uh, we built them so that we can also bring people into our lives and show them these people or these relationships. So yeah, if you're looking for those kind of more personal relationships or experiences, then I think, um, the program's good, but the program is for people who maybe, I think if you want to spend a bit more time and live a little bit more slower, um, I think that that would be a good fit. But if you're, you know, tight on time and you want to just visit the recycling center, visit some nature spots, I think it's, it's very accessible for, for anybody who wants to do it. And then I was listening, we were listening on your, um, I think one of your podcasts, you were talking about dating. Has that been successful or not? You guys had a lot of humor on that. I just, I couldn't catch if you did have success or not. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big. Um, uh, yeah, um, Linda is in a relationship um, with somebody who's actually from Tokyo. So it's a, it's a long distance relationship. I actually um, uh, was not successful in finding somebody in Japan. Um, I'm, I, I've actually recently connected um, with a previous boyfriend but we we split up but then we're back together um and uh he's from belgium and he's actually going to be visiting japan soon so i hope that works out (laughs) nice and (laughs) for the older i mean one of the demographic issues japan has um yeah there's tends to be more men in the countryside and they have kind of the filipina uh and thai wife kind of visas i'm just curious have you seen any of that in shikoku or how do you have that, you yeah, that's, that's so interesting that you say that. no i haven't seen that anywhere in in kamikatsu um i haven't been around that much in shikoku but there are a couple other imakas i visited in um tokushima and i haven't seen that um I will mention that there's a there's a dating dating kind not dating there's a like a matchmaking service in Kamikatsu. It's called Kamikatsu Cupid. And it's um like three or four elderly ladies who uh provide matchmaking services. So I thought that was quite funny. They're hosting a dinner next month and I was asked if I wanted to go. <laughs> Is that traditional matchmaking as in is that what i'm just curious that sounds fascinating yeah, yeah it's not like a goal con which is like really like the traditional matchmaking services um it's kind of more casual it's like they'll invite you know they'll they have these posters and you know on the poster they say we're making uh you know sushi rice together but it's like organized by coming cuts cupid and so if you register then they'll try to match the amount of um, men and female, they'll try to have that ratio. Uh, so it's, it's a casual kind of matchmaking. No, that sounds very beautiful. It's very, well, (laughs) that's what I was coming back to. Even with the town only has what, 1500 people or something. Yeah. 15. Yeah. hundred. They still seem optimistic and positive. So just having these small things seems, you know, you hear about like some place in Ohio that's dying or some Canadian small town yeah yeah it just doesn't have the same optimism right that i feel i've never been to kamikatsu but these descriptions make it seem like they're rooted in tradition and community and people and even the future yeah i think that people have decided like this is where i'm going to spend my life and and with that decision um it's like okay well like let's make let's make this a, a better place to live in 
Great. And the last question I was having mm-hmm. was, um, you were talking about freedom, I think, Seikatsu Skudo, like living, making your life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Designing your own life. Yeah. Do you find yourself being more free now in this town? Or maybe you can elaborate on that freedom? Yeah, um, I think that, I think that um, in a in the countryside for me, um, I don't feel like kind of tied into these like kind of slots of time that I need to work in. Like I know I don't need to work nine to five, um, and I have like less conveniences available to me, and so you know, if I wanted to cook, I have to decide like, okay, do I want to cook from scratch? What do I want to cook with? And so I think it's just, um, almost having like kind of a a blank canvas because I have so little to pull on, then I get to be more in control of how I, um, actually, and design, design your life comes from Nakamura-san who really felt like he pulled elements of things he got inspiration from, from his time abroad and from his like past you know, time in Japan and decided these are the things I want to bring into my life. And these are the things I want to, to, yeah, spend my time doing. And so, um, I think because we have so little in the countryside, maybe not so little, but, um, so many, like many less conveniences available. Um, you can bring that kind of mindfulness into creating a life that, that you want to live. Great. Kana, is there anything else you want to add today? No, I think I think that's all. But I didn't get to hear about you, so... <laughs> oh, we can talk just... about me next time. Okay, and... sounds good. <laughs> sounds well, anyway, Kana, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time. It sounds like a beautiful yeah. place. Hopefully I can go to Japan one day. Yeah, you know, yeah. And v- visit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anytime, you're welcome. Great. <laughs>